Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 150. We'll continue in the book of Zechariah with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 11 and follow with some thoughts about the metaphors we use and live by. Tanakhcast was created to explore the Tanakh from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, looking at and thinking about four chapters of the Book of Books every two weeks, so we've hit an arbitrary landmark, a nice round number for an episode, episode 150. (coughs) Tanakhcast has been added since 2013 and will hopefully wrap it up in 2022, which puts this arbitrary landmark episode not at the halfway point, but more like at the 60% point. So am I going to do anything special to mark this 150th episode, six-tenths of the way to finish? Mm, Nah, I'm just going to get right into it. Remember when Zacharia was kind of wondering out loud about the public mourning and fasting for the first temple's destruction and how God was wondering what people were fasting about and when they ended their fast with a big meal, who was actually benefiting from the break fast, which kind of gave the impression that God was still a bit salty about the events that precipitated the first temple's destruction, specifically the people's sinfulness. But Zacharia reports... God has pivoted. Quote, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of faithfulness and the mount of the Lord of hosts, the holy mount. There shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. And what's the catalyst for this transformation? Well, if you hearken even further back to episode 147 about the Bilbao effect, you will uncover the answer. That's right, the second temple, about which Zechariah has a message for its builders. Quote, Just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so when I vindicate you, you shall become a blessing. Have no fear. Take courage. Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? German? Forget it, he's rolling. But if you really want to build something great, Zechariah says, build a just society. Quote, speak the truth to one another, render true and perfect justice in your gates, and do not contrive evil against one another, and do not love perjury, because all those things are things I hate. And when you do that, there will no longer be a need for fasting. Gladness will replace sadness, and everyone will want to get in on the fun, literally grabbing the coattails of the return of the exiles. Quote, they will take hold of every Jew by a corner of his cloak and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Chapter 9 sounds an awful lot like current events, with chaos and tumult all around, from Damascus in the north, through Tyre and Sidon, down through the coast through Gaza. But Jerusalem is stable and content with the arrival of its new king, riding a humble donkey. Quote, he shall banish chariots from Ephraim and horses from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow shall be banished. He shall call on the nations to surrender, and his rule shall extend from sea to sea and from ocean to land's end. Chapter 10 posits God as the shepherd and the people as heroes, undefeatable on the field of battle, the exiled returning in their multitudes. But chapter 11 shifts in tone, quote, throw open your gates, O Lebanon, and let fire consume your cedars. 
Howl, cypresses, for cedars have fallen. How the mighty are ravaged. Howl, you oaks of Bashan, for the stately forest is laid low. The mighty, haughty leaders will be brought low. Quote, hark, the wailing of the shepherds, for their rich pastures are ravaged. Hark, the roaring of the great beasts, for the jungle of the Jordan is ravaged. And then God tells Zechariah, tend the sheep meant for slaughter. We're going to be dealing a lot with this shepherd and sheep metaphor in this chapter, so let's see if we can figure it out. When you, the shepherd, take your herd to slaughter, you gain in the short term. You sell the meat and pocket the money, but there's no future because there's no more herd. And you also don't have to work any longer either. So if the leaders of the people are the shepherd and the people are the sheep, the leaders will have no pity on the people. But then the metaphor shifts, and now the the shepherd is the prophet, and there are two shepherd staffs involved as well one of which he breaks to represent the break between Judah and Israel, but isn't that the old news already? It's not really clear. And then God tells Zechariah to get himself some, quote, gear of a foolish shepherd, because as a foolish shepherd, he will be inattentive to all the mishaps, happenings in the flock, and mismanage the remainder. Quote, Oh, the worthless shepherd who abandons the flock, let a sword descend upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall shrivel up, his right eye shall go blind. And on that withering note, here endeth the lesson. One of the cornerstones upon which all of my academic research and writing has rested is the understanding that abstract concepts are largely expressed as metaphors. This I learned from Tom Cochran, as well as my rabbis, cognitive linguists George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, and their 1980 book, Metaphors We Live By. Now, I say that abstract concepts are largely metaphorical because many of the concepts swimming around in our minds emerge from direct experience and come to be defined in their own terms. For example, we all have a sense of what up and down is, in and out, near and far, front and back. We all also have a sense of categories when it comes to things in physical space, such as substance, container, entity, and person. We also have a sense of structured activities or experiences like eating, moving oneself, or moving objects from place to place. Where metaphors come in is when we try to understand one thing by framing it in terms of other things. We take an abstract concept and link it to something concrete that we've experienced and understood. And some of these associations are so commonly used that they become so deeply embedded in our language and thinking that they seem to be part of the natural order and universal like metaphors based on orientation. For example, more is up, as in Wall Street rallied today and stock prices are up 10%, or I got my paycheck and surprise, I got a raise. Yay! The opposite, less is down, is just as pervasive. Also, good is up. Things are looking up, buddy. Keep your head up. The opposite, bad is down, is also a thing, and don't be such a downer about it, okay? And then there are other metaphors that are driven by specific context and require some specific knowledge, or they're partial or inconsistent or overlapping. This is when the fun begins. So, for example, you're thinking about uh, colorfully describing a friend's act of self-sabotage, and you describe it as an own goal. But 
then you realize that you're speaking to a North American or someone who might not be a fan of proper footy, which means that your metaphor will probably confuse more than enlighten. So you opt instead to describe what your friend did as stepping on a rake, which assumes that your friend knows what a rake is and how one might find oneself stepping on it. And I've been in this situation countless times where I go with a framing metaphor to help clarify and strengthen the point I'm making and the folks I'm speaking to don't challenge the point but call me out on some aspect of the metaphor I've chosen. So for example... I was challenged on a statement I made about standardized testing being a tremendous time suck, especially when you consider how there are so many other valuable things to learn in school. To support this point, I said that yes, it's nice to know how to change a tire, and I probably should dedicate some time to learning how to do that when I first learn how to drive, but I don't think it's critical to exercise that skill every time I get behind the wheel. I don't get it. 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 Okay, so let me break it down. I made this connection between learning at school and driving a car. Knowing how to change a tire, though beneficial as a car owner, is not critical nor fundamental to the car driving experience. In the same way, knowing how to take a standardized test, though useful as a student, is not critical nor fundamental to the school learning experience. To which someone responded, I've been driving my car for over 30 years. I wish I knew how to change the tire on my car. So now, instead of talking about the point, we're quibbling about my choice of metaphor. Self-sabotage, one could say, is intentional, but stepping on a rake is accidental. Is this what you're trying to say? That our mutual friend did this foolish thing by mistake? Well, that's excusable, isn't it? Maybe it was dark and she didn't see the rake, but that's not what happened, and -and so-and-so did this on purpose, and she did it intentionally, but is that what happens with an own goal? Isn't that also a mistake? Shouldn't people know how to change their tires, you know, especially women? Is this a feminist issue? Is this about empowerment? And by this point... You're so caught up in squabbling over the nuances of the metaphor that the thing you were talking about, the actual point of the initial communication, is long forgotten. Now, I am sure that there are some of you that would say that the squabbling is part of the fun, that parsing the metaphor, highlighting the connection between the one thing and the other thing, is enlightening and informative. But sometimes, you just want to get to the point. You feel me? Zechariah, like Yeshayahu, Yermiyahu, and all the other prophets, dealt with folks who lived mostly agrarian lifestyles, and even the folks living in towns or cities in more white-collar professions were not all that removed from the agricultural experience in the seasons. In some cases, the prophets themselves, like Amos, were not prophets nor sons of, or disciples of prophets, but cattle breeders or tenders of sycamore figs. All of which is to say that when Zechariah, son and grandson of prophets, talked about shepherds, not only was he conversant enough with the profession, but he was sure his audience was too. Which leads me to this very pivotal question. If everyone in the Tanakh understood all the metaphors and all the contexts, because those metaphors and those contexts were very much part of their lived experience, are we hampered from any real possibility of truly understanding what the Tanakh is trying to tell us because we can't possibly get it. Or think of it this way. Imagine if the Tanakh was one long joke. Do we lose something when we really don't get the joke and someone has to explain it to us? I would say probably, but I think even though we today 
are the farthest removed from the agrarian lifestyle as any Jew has ever been, we can still think about the experience of shepherds as part of a metaphorical scheme. We just have to add another layer. Whereas the Tanakhic audience appreciated the physical and cultural experience of shepherding so they could easily extrapolate from the concrete to the abstract, we have to unpack the concrete as if it was an abstract layer. In a sense, this is what exegetes do. Exegesis is all about unpacking the concrete in the text, but they do it in a most elegant manner. Their senses are acute. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. I fear something terrible has happened. The work of the Tanaim in the Mishnah and the Amoraim in the Talmud reflect a keen linguistic sense, judgment, and profound insight into the complexity and difficulty of the Tanakh. Through this process, they not only clarify the muddled as well as resolve conflicts and continuity errors, they take a step closer to deriving what God actually wants from us. Their work continued into the Middle Ages and the early modern period and continues well into the present century. Tanakhcast is also part of that homiletic tradition to find edification, moral instruction, and sustenance for the thoughts and feelings of the present. I hope you've been enjoying it. I know I have. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out Tanakhcast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 151 when we conclude the book of Zechariah with chapters 12 through 14.